Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and this is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. And today we are speaking with Professor Lawrence Principe, Drew Professor of the Humanities in the Department of the History of Science and Technology and the Department of Chemistry at Johns Hopkins University. That is the longest title I've ever had the pleasure of giving on this podcast. Larry, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Pleasure. So you are a man who really does know a thing or two about alchemy, both history of alchemy and practice of alchemy. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about both these things in this interview. But before we do that, I thought it would be really useful to lay down some historical basics. So assuming we know little to nothing about alchemy, but we understand history a little bit, we understand the flow of history. Let's try to get a picture of the, the origins and development of this complex phenomenon. So first of all, the word alchemy. If we can get an etymological anatomy of this word, it might be useful. Well, right. Etymologies sometimes do give us insight into things uh, more than just the word, but the history as well. So alchemy, as we have it in the English language, is actually a juxtaposition of words from two different language groups. Al, which is the Arabic definite article, the, right, and kemi, which comes, well, it could come from two possible places. The most likely is that it comes from the Greek word, the Greek verb, keo, which means to melt or to dissolve. And so, or kemu, which is an ingot of metal. So it has something to do with metals, with melting, perhaps with refining. So the first time we know about the word being used in Greek, the word is kemia. But there's another possible origin for it. It's also said that uh, it might come from the Egyptian name for the country of Egypt itself, which is Kem, meaning kind of the black land, in a reference to the silt of the Nile. Now, it's perfectly possible it's both of these things, because alchemy does take its origin in Greco-Roman Egypt, where there would have been a knowledge of both Greek and of Egyptian. So it's possible that there is a, a dual origin to the word. The Arabic article gets attached to it when, it tra- when the subject of alchemy travels through the Arabic-speaking world, which is how it gets into Europe. And so alchemia in Arabic becomes alchemia in Latin, which then gives us alchemy in English. Brilliant. So is it safe to say that we're not really sure about the origins of the, the creme part of the word, but we're, we have a, two educated guesses, which may, one of which, or both of which at the same time is probably the case. Right. Okay. Now, if we can do a little historical run-through of the history of this fascinating stuff, the textual record that we have starts with a fellow called Democritus, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Or the pseudo-Democritus. Yes. Um, now, we're going to talk about that gentleman's work in an episode with uh, Matteo Martelli, a specialist on pseudo-democritus. But I wonder if you could say a few things about what we could say about the predecessor. So he's, he's not coming out of nowhere with his work. He's coming out of some stuff that we can probably make educated guesses about that came before him. That's correct. It's, it's really very difficult to say something about where alchemy originates, because we would need a much stricter definition of what counts and what doesn't count as alchemy than is actually possible. Right. What we're certainly sure about is that the first alchemical treatises do come from Greco-Roman Egypt in about the first century AD, and they are based on a couple of sources of foregoing information. Certainly a long, very long-standing metallurgical craft tradition, highly developed in Egypt and in the ancient world, in the entire eastern Mediterranean and in Mesopotamia as well, but also a Greek philosophical thought which had come into Egypt after the conquest of Egypt by Alexander the Great, so it's part of the Greek-speaking world. And it's really the the sort of initial dances between those two traditions, this craft tradition and this philosophical tradition, from which uh, alchemy eventually emerges. Now, the early pseudo-Democritus, who's been dated to the first century AD, he's clearly more in this metallurgical tradition, but If one were entirely in that tradition, one probably wouldn't actually even write anything, because it would have been 
craft traditions passed from father to son through a family, usually kept secret because one's livelihood, for example, depends upon it, uh, in, in the sense of trade secrets, craft secrets. But pseudo-Democritus does, in fact, seem to have some philosophical sophistication as well there, uh, with some of his mottos about nature and how one does trans transformations. So he's got, as it were, a, a theory of physics lying behind what he does, like a physical theory. Is that, what, is that an accurate way of putting it? I would correct that just slightly to say physics in the original meaning of the Greek word, physica, hmm. that is natural things. So we have the pseudo-D, but moving forward to another author who's difficult to date with any precision, but people usually say the 4th century, in Middle Egypt, a place called, nowadays called Achmim, we have Zosimus of Panopolis. I wonder if you can say a little bit about this guy, because this is a very different... When you read Zosimus, it's no longer the territory of uh, dry how-to manual. We've moved into a new kind of thought world. We have indeed. There's a much closer alliance between a number of streams of thought present in Greco-Roman Egypt. So, yes, the craft, the metallurgical traditions, yes, Greek philosophy, but also Gnosticism, Judeo-Christian religion, all kind of temple practices uh, still from the old Egyptian religion, all combined together into this really fascinating amalgam of ideas and practices. I like how you slipped the, in the word amalgam there. I tried. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the, the problem, of course, is that we have so little of Zosimus. Uh, I think before we can even understand what's going on in uh, Greco-Roman Egypt and the alchemy of that time, we have to understand how thin our connection to that time period actually is. Uh, essentially, all of our knowledge of Greek language alchemy of that period comes from a single set of manuscripts, which are no more than excerpts of what whoever copied it thought were the interesting bits. Mm. So we really have no more than fragments. But even those fragments are enough to tell us that Zosimus was a mighty interesting character. Mm. A couple points I'd like to mention about Zosimus. Well, first of all, I wonder if you could tell us about what we can reconstruct of the roots of, of his work. Because he talks about predecessors and contemporaries and uh, even people he thinks are idiots and wants to attack. And, um... <laughs> Absolutely, which must mean that by his time, by the 4th century, alchemy must have divided into competing schools of different approaches, which means there's a whole tradition and a whole evolution that we really know nothing about. He refers constantly, as you say, to his predecessors, to Mary, uh, to Hermes to a number of other characters and to contemporaries with whom he just wants to disagree, mm. which he seems to like to do quite a bit. Yeah. Now, Hermes is, is Hermes mentioned as a teacher of alchemy? He is as, as an authority. Now who this Hermes was, yeah. um, that's another question. Uh, one of the things that of course bedevils all of our work on alchemy is the constant pseudonymity so there may have been an actual author who wrote text and put the name Hermes on it. We have a few fragments of that, but not necessarily the fragments that Zosimus did. Right. But it's interesting because listeners to this podcast are familiar with the, the Hellenistic texts known as the Hermes text, which is the foundational um, document for Hellenistic astrology. And that's mm -hmm. been around for centuries by this point. But now Hermes is diversifying his, his output into new <laughs> scientific fields. In fact, he is. Zosimus writes in the 4th century, let's say, late Roman period in, the, in sort of the middle of Egypt, in the sort of hinterlands. What can we say about the evolution of Greek alchemy after him going forward in a summary way? I know a lot of work remains to be done in this field and is being done uh, now. That's correct. A huge amount of work remains to be done. We still... A lack many uh, critical editions and proper translations of the rather few Greek sources that exist. But these are often extremely difficult texts to understand, and it takes scholars years to really get to the root of what they're about and how to translate them properly. 
it's a little bit hard to say what goes on after the time of Zosimus, given the lack of survival of those texts. But many of the texts that we do have, and that's the only thing we can speak about at this point, um, often tend to be commentary texts on earlier works. So trying to expound the writings of Zosimus and others, trying to uh, link it a little, think alchemy a little more closely with various Greek philosophical traditions and so forth. And what do we have from the the classical tradition? Before what else? Do, what do we have after Zosimus from what you might call late antiquity? Oh well, let's see. We have the writings of uh, a person by the name of Stephanos of Alexandria, mm-hmm. uh, the philosopher Christianus, which is the only name we know him by. We certainly also have, if we want to get out of the Greek language, we have some things probably from the sixth and seventh centuries in Syriac but extremely fragmentary. They undoubtedly played a role in transmitting this material, but we don't at present have a very strong handle on them. Okay. Now, I'm going to try to make a pressy here. Tell me if I get this wrong. Things in the Western Roman Empire from about the 4th century onwards get worse and worse and worse, and gradually Roman power contracts to the Italian center and then pretty much goes out by the end of the 6th century. And alchemy... Is, is dead in the West. Is that safe to say for a while? Well, as far as we know, alchemy never made a foothold in right. the in Western Roman Empire. It was a phenomenon largely uh, con- largely confined to Egypt and uh, the Levant. Got it. As far as we know. So in Egypt and the Levant, where things didn't get so bad, you then have alchemy being alchemical texts being copied in Greek. We can come back maybe to talking about what people were doing, what kind of practices they were doing. But... From the 7th century onward, we have a new player in the region, which is the Islamicate world. And from the 8th century onwards, they are translating stuff avidly Mm -hmm. from Greek. So what relevance does this play for the history of alchemy? What happens? Well, a number of things happen. It would be wrong to think of the Islamicate uh, world as being just a preserver of the Greek materials. Instead, alchemy really comes into its own as a branch of natural inquiry in the Islamic world. So we have huge numbers of new texts being written along with the Greek texts being translated. We still have a lot of hope that a number of our Greek texts, which have been lost in Greek, are still may still be preserved to a large extent in Arabic. There's, there's clear examples of some of these, which, which people are working on now. But we also have an expansion of the sort of the materia alchemica, if I can say that. So the number of substances that are known, right? The Islamic, uh, the Ummah, the Ummayyad, and then the Abbasid dynasties spread far and wide, and so are able to pick up new kinds of substances that are then used alchemically. New kinds of glassware, uh, which Zosimus talks about some kinds of apparatus, but in the Islamic world. This kind, these kinds of glasswares multiply quite uh, substantially, along with a lot of new theories about how should we do things, how should we get a handle on the physical world and and transform it. And um, well, that the story of Islamic alchemy is something we will be looking at piece by piece, hopefully as we go along in the podcast. I wonder if you could say a few words about the transmission of alchemical texts in the East Roman realm up to the Ottoman conquest, because this is something that's very sort of a hot topic in alchemy studies in the moment and is proving to be very important because these copyists are sort of the gatekeepers or the the, the curators of some later alchemical reception. Right. So really, it's, it's it's a twofold story. One is the story of what goes to the Arabic speaking world, what tends to be translated and then copied and preserved in Arabic. Uh, which will then be transmitted to Western Europe eventually, by the in the twelfth, starting in the twelfth century. But then there's also the question of what's going on in Byzantium. And you know, for a long time, the history of science didn't pay enough attention to the Islamic world. And in fact, now we know that the story of the history of science, the kind of story we're telling now, uh, doesn't make sense without including the Islamic world. We still have to go a long way to add the Byzantine world to that. We still don't really know what's happening with the sciences in any kind of fundamental way in what remains of 
the Eastern Roman Empire. What we do know in terms of alchemy is that at some time, probably in the 10th century, someone asked a scribe to collect an anthology of the earlier Greek writings. So all the way back to the Pseudo-Democritus, Zosimus, Christianus, uh, Stephanus, all of these characters. And that manuscript now survives. It's in the Marciana Library in Venice, which that and the other texts copied from, from it or its, its brothers or cousins of this manuscript tradition are really all we've got. And how did that manuscript make its way to the light of day and be discovered by scholars? Ah, well, it's a wonderful story, actually. Um, It presumably sat around in Constantinople for three or four centuries, and it was brought to Italy by Cardinal Bessarion. Ah, the student of Plathon. Indeed. When he attended the Council of Florence and Ferrara, to try and reunite the Eastern and Western churches. And so it was one of the gifts that he brought to Italy, and eventually that and many of his other manuscripts ended up in Venice. Right. So stay tuned for that story. It's a doozy. Alchemy makes its way into the Latin world, the Latin-speaking world in the 12th century. It's, a, it's an immediate hit, no? It takes off. It does, um, because the Latins have never heard of this. In fact, the first translation that we know of, which was done in 1144 uh, by Robert of Chester, of an Arabic treatise, which he translates as uh, on the composition of alchemy. And for him, alchemy means not the whole science itself, but the transmuting agent that will turn base metals into gold. So in other words, how to make the transmuting agent is the title of this work. He writes in it that there is this Uh, what alchemy is our Latin world does not yet know and he translates this text now it's a very interesting text that he chooses to translate because it's a text that is about how the Arabs got alchemy from a Christian monk in, in supposedly in the 8th century so here you have the, uh, uh, an Arabic treatise about uh, the son of an Umayyad caliph learning from a Greek-speaking Christian monk the secrets of alchemy, now being translated out of Arabic and being the uh, the torchbearer of the entire field of alchemy to the Latin West. Love it. So there's all kinds of fascinating cross-cultural currents going on here. Yeah. And, um, but this takes off, doesn't it? You get a lot of more and more works in Latin. It, it does. The, the, the Latin world hits the ground running, so to speak. A number of new texts are written, often by Latin authors trying to pass themselves off as Arabs yep. in order to give their uh, works more authority and cachet, as it were. Um, some of these we're only now discovering in the last uh, 50 years or so were not actually Arabic texts, but were actually written by Latins. People are just enormously excited about this. The idea that human industry could somehow change the materials of the natural world so that human industry could do the same thing that the natural world does. And it's not long before uh, some of the exponents of alchemy will say, well, yeah, we can't just do that. We can make things better than they exist in the natural world. Gold that's better, materials that are better through the application of human industry. Mm. Foreshadowing a number of other ideas that arise in uh, science more recently. Um, this will also take on, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but this, this seems to me to be pulling us toward the early modern period where you get sure. these ideas of raise in a Christian context, raising the fallen nature up to its sort of prelapsarian state. So kind of redeeming the universe through alchemy. Absolutely. And this idea of overcoming the fall is very strong in medieval thought. Uh, We find it again and again in authors across the disciplines that, you know, the way we live now is not supposed, is not what we're supposed to be living, that we have a nature that's higher than this. So how do we get back to that? What else would you like to say about early modern alchemy? Well, one of the things I think we should point out about it is that even though alchemy gets a really good start in the Middle Ages, where people are just enthusiastic and it starts to make a, get a foothold in the university 
things turned sour pretty quickly in the 14th century. And it's the reason that alchemy starts turning sour in a lot of places. Basically that people in authority are afraid that uh, with all these guys around figuring out how to make one metal look like another, how soon will it be that counterfeiting is going to take place? That the coinage and the economy will be subverted by people who know how to make something look like gold, or perhaps even correctly make gold, but maybe that gold isn't the same, despite the rhetoric, isn't the same as the natural material. Yeah. Well, even if it were, if you have someone who's churning out doubloons and they're the finest gold, that messes with your currency. You know, that's, you know, it sure does. It can lead to inflation. It can lead to, it doesn't lead to money to the coffers of the state. That's for sure. It's a disaster. So right? that's really interesting. So as we explore the story of alchemy throughout the history of the podcast, as we've already seen with astrology and um, the Roman Empire trying to crack down on it because they want a monopoly on the future, basically. Knowledge of the future, knowledge of the emperor's date of death, stuff like this. We will see that alchemy also will run up against state power in a number of ways, but also become friends with state power, right? Absolutely. So the court, right. the court alchemist will appear in this period as well. Indeed, there's this constant bifurcation between, wow, alchemy is really great as long as I control it. But what if one of my enemies controls it? Then I'm in trouble. So an alchemical arms race. Um, in a sense, yeah. Now, a few more things I'd like to ask you historically. You very much put laboratory practice back at the heart of the study of historical alchemy. Um, redressing, you say bending the stick back <laughs> after um, many decades of Jungian scholarship and stuff like that, that want to say it's all just spiritual. It's all spiritual allegory. Um, however, in the early modern period, you do start to see explicitly spiritual alchemies, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. It's never a mainstream of alchemy. It's never a majority of those people actually working on alchemy, but there are a number of very interesting characters and thinkers along the broad spectrum of alchemy uh, in the early modern period. And the question is, how do you want to define this spiritual alchemy? One of the things that's ubiquitous is really the idea that there's some kind of analogy between material transformations and, let's say, the history of salvation. That is just that is a that is a, a fact of the way pre-modern people looked at the world around them in these complementary, corresponding, analogical kinds of ways. But beyond that, there are also examples of characters who believe that alchemical secrets also contain particular spiritual powers. For example, that the that particular kinds of stones instead of just the philosopher's stone that can make gold out of the base metals, there are actually other kinds of stones that give the power of prophecy, for example, right. or power of, of second sight, something like that. And um, where is alchemy from there? I mean, we, we move, I suppose, into the 17th century when you have um, the first battle lines being drawn, if these are the first battle lines, where people start saying, there's this thing called alchemy, and then there's this other thing called chemistry, or chemistry, or whatever they called it. And we want to differentiate the two. And a split manifests, which eventually leads to this chemistry thing branching off and becoming something else. Is that a safe uh, summary? I would modify it just a little bit. Please do. That in general, we tend to see things in terms of hindsight. And so for a very long time, uh, historians wanted to see the origins of chemistry and alchemy was a sort of an annoyance. It sort of had to be cast out of the way for chemistry actually to blossom. We now know that that's not true, that, it, that alchemy, and if we define it, let's be very precise now, let's define alchemy as interest in performing the transmutation of base metals into precious metals. That persists far, far longer than we ever imagined. We are only finding out in the last decade, really, um, how long that persisted, even in the most learned, most institutionally elevated circles in Europe, well into the 18th century, and even makes appearances again in the 19th and even in the early 20th century. So there's another story that needs to be told here about 
alchemy as transmutational chemistry running for a while side by side with chemistry and then parting company and then coming back and sort of making up and breaking up over a lengthy period of time. So I, the, the, the question is, of course, why did this happen this way? Well, unfortunately, and as a chemist, uh, well, one of my hats uh, being a chemist, uh, I'm sorry to say, chemistry did not have a good reputation in the 17th century. And it did, really didn't develop a good reputation until the 18th. And one of the ways of fixing its reputation was for people to make rhetorical statements, pushing things like the transmutation that sound too good to be true. And we're also, of course, since dealing with money, um, rich ground for fraud and uh, uh, swindling out of the picture, push them out of the picture. And let's just keep the, the safer parts of chemistry. Right. So they were cleaning up the reputation of their field. Right. Right. Remember that things like astronomy, the equivalents of the life sciences were in the universities pretty early. Um, certainly astronomy and physics back to the Middle Ages. But chemistry doesn't really get a foothold until um, the 18th century. And then mostly in medical contexts, because it's useful there. Right, interesting. That brings us up to the modern period pretty well. And uh, things just kind of explode from there. Um, <laughs> but I, what I'd like to do, since you've brought up methodological questions of what do we mean by alchemy, is go back in time, right to the pseudo-Democritus, and talk okay. about what is the subject matter? What is this stuff? What is alchemy? What are, what are alchemists writing about? And how much does it, how much can we say from the pseudo-Democritus to like uh, Fulcanelli <laughs> that they're, they're all, they all mean the same thing when they say alchemy? <laughs> well, the alchemists love to say, we alchemists all say one thing. Right. That is definitely not the case. Okay. Um, uh, there are many, many different uh, goals for alchemy, many different ways of attaining those goals, uh, many different philosophical co-conditions, let's say, for the way people do alchemy. Um, you can be sort of Aristotelian, you can be Paracelsian, you could be anti-Paracelsian, you could be all sorts of things and still try to do alchemy, but in very different ways. So if we go back to the earliest days, what the earliest texts of alchemy are about, it's actually pretty easy to say that, oddly. They're about four things. Gold, silver, precious stones, and purple dyes. So all expensive articles of commerce and what the Pseudo-Democritus and the, the famous papyri called the Stockholm and Leiden papyri that contain recipes both of those seem to have been broken down into what may have been at the time a standard fourfold division, gold, silver, precious stones, purple dyes. And these recipes are all for trying to make cheaper imitations of those substances. Right. So taking metal that doesn't look like gold and making it look like gold, stuff like that. Right. Or like silver. Or glass or pebbles making them look like precious stones. Or instead of having to get however many tens of thousands of murex snails you need to dye a royal purple garment, can you make it from seaweed or some other kind of plant? Okay. And is that still, is Zosimus still talking about that stuff? Zosimus has changed tack a little bit in the intervening three centuries. And instead of making imitations, he's convinced he can make real gold and real silver. Um, Generally, the uh, alchemists were able to tell the difference. The, it's often said that they didn't have the mechanisms for testing, but mostly they did. A gold refining, silver refining was highly developed in the ancient world. So they could tell between ersatz gold and real gold. And Zosimus is convinced that with his th underlying theory of the composition of metals, one should be able to change a base metal, lead, mercury, tin, what have you, into gold or silver. Right. Now, that claim does stick around for a long time, right? And the idea sure. that, that metals, and there's various theoretical um, justifications for all this that we'll be getting into in detail in the podcast as it goes on, but the idea that there is a kind of um, primordial metal stuff of some kind that can be turned into different 
metals. Um, lasts kind of right up to the modern period, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And so that, would you say that remains a central concern of, of all alchemy? Yes, figuring out the compositions of metals and how to uh, fiddle with that uh, composition to get the composition of the metal that you want. Okay. Now, so if, the, if people could assay metals, they could, they could um, take a little piece of the gold, figure out how much of it is real gold, how much of it is base, you know, alloyed, etc. What do you make of all the accounts from the ages of well-attested transmutations, successful transmutations? Oh, I wish I could answer that question. Yeah, it makes me wonder sometimes, particularly when doing my own research, I found a first-person detailed narrative account by Robert Boyle that had not been seen before. Really? And he was absolutely convinced by what he saw. He had the gold, he assayed it, and you wonder, what on earth were you watching, that Robert Boyle? I Interesting. So he, he saw the, the transmutation in front of his eyes. Yes. Now, stagecraft, sleight of hand. Possibly. Interesting. Uh, it's not a question I like to answer because I really, I, I can't answer it. Uh, at this point, I have seen so many first-person affidavits, witness statements sent to royalty about what people have seen, uh, people who tell of just, you know, having put lead into a crucible and they were given a powder to throw in and they threw in the powder and then they poured out gold. And one I just ran across a, a few months ago talks about how the man says, and I sat there speechless. I, I didn't know what to say. I was ready looking for the trick and I couldn't find it. Well, I hit on, so, a, good, I hit on a good question to ask there because that adds a yes. little bit of mystery to what we're doing. Indeed. But nevertheless, a lot of your work and research, which I'd like to turn to now, is to do with putting all this stuff on a very empirical basis. So you have pioneered trying out alchemical recipes. Yes. So what kind of stuff do you do? Give us a picture of the modern academic chemist who studies alchemy's laboratory day. <laughs> um, well, I think what I, what I do is I go into the laboratory when I have a question that can't be answered using the standard toolkit of the historian, that is, archives and, and documents of mm -hmm. some sort. Of. Um, it struck me early on that I would get a much better sense, a more vivid sense of the way alchemists thought and the way they guided their experiments if I could somehow, more or less, um, see what they saw, experience what they saw, try to do what they did. Now, when I first started getting into alchemy, the, I, the general idea was that the alchemists were just making stuff up, that they didn't actually go into laboratories, or if they did, they just mixed up great witches' brews of things and didn't have any logical or rational sense. That didn't make sense to me. So I wanted actually to sort of try and think like an alchemist for a little while and, and, and see if they had recipes, did they did some of them actually work? And I didn't necessarily mean um, turning base metals into gold, but uh, some of the the simpler recipes. So it was to add another tool to my historical toolkit, actually, to do this. And it's a it's borne a lot of fruit, hasn't it? I mean, we've we suddenly know, for example, why certain substances were so important to alchemists that we didn't know. Like, why are they so obsessed with this this particular substance? And oh, because if you if you put it with some some copper, it turns it to a very gold like color, this sort of thing. Let me just say, I love chemistry because it always shows me something unexpected. It's such a wonderful field of rich with visual, uh, qualitative, sensory experiences. Well, I give you a couple examples. One time in in the 1670s, Robert Boyle published this paper anonymously about a special kind of mercury he had made that when mixed with gold grew hot, which is the opposite of what mercury usually does. It usually gets just slightly colder when you mix it with gold. I had the idea that he had gotten this recipe from one of his early collaborators by the name of George Starkey, who was a, 
um, an American alchemist that uh, born in Bermuda, educated at Harvard, went to England and became friends with Boyle. I, I, I got the idea that this mercury that Boyle was talking about was actually a product he had learned to make from Starkey. But there was no smoking gun in terms of a paper or a paper trail is the better word. There was no paper trail. So I thought, okay, well, if I have Starkey, fortunately we have some of his notebooks. Can I follow some of his recipes to see if he produced a mercury that would grow hot with gold? So after a lot of time working on this process, I actually produced a kind of mercury that was supposedly a special philosophical mercury. And, uh, well, I didn't trust my own senses. There would be a sort of placebo effect, I guess, that I thought if I mixed it like Boyle said in the palm of my hand, I was also a little skittish about pouring mercury into the palm of my hand, yeah. having it grow hot there. Um, anyway, when I finally did it, I did it in a crucible, put a small amount of, of this mercury in, a th very sensitive thermometer and uh, gold, and sure enough, the temperature went up pretty markedly as a result which was evidence for me that, in fact, it answered a historical question. Yes, Robert Boyle got this recipe from George Starkey, even though we don't have the kind of paper trail that a historian would like. What became more dramatic was when I decided to tr take it the next step, and that is to mix some of this mercury with gold and put it in a sealed flask, which is the first step for making the Philosopher's Stone. Mm. And uh, since they didn't have thermometers like we do, getting the accurate temperature was not, we don't know what the exact temperature was supposed to be. At any rate, the gold was supposed to expand and grow is the word that is used. So sealed it up in the flask, put it in a heating mantle, um, started heating it. So you're trying to imitate like a dung heap. Yeah. The gentle heat of a dung heap. Well, it's not clear whether okay. he used gentle heat or what level of heat. So I just kept turning it up, waiting for something to happen, uh, turning up a, a little bit every few days. And finally, after about three weeks of this material, which was this leaden-colored lump in the bottom of the flask, I came into my lab one day, looked at it, and thought I had completely lost my senses. Because instead of this lump in the bottom of the flask, I had a silvery tree inside the flask that had grown overnight. And I, to be perfectly honest, I sat down in my chair at my desk and I thought, I did not just see that. I am obviously hallucinating. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, it works that way. That, in fact, this mercury will make gold vegetate like a little tree. Um, I did not get the Philosopher's Stone out of it in the end, but maybe I did something wrong after that. So it carried on from there, but that was already a pretty cool result. That was an astonishing result, because before that time, when we see pictures of trees or we hear about gold vegetating, it has always been sort of pushed aside as just some kind of allegorical speech or as fantasy. But here, in fact... It actually works. It makes good chemical sense. Wow. I've often wanted to get a, um, a time-lapse uh, film of it, but I've never been able to do that, unfortunately. Um, I just either not had the time or whatever to Watch do it. Watch Pot but Never Boils. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but the, the, the tree actually grows back in a if – you, if you shake the flask, it's got the consistency of sort of soft butter, and it will go back into a lump. And you heat it, and in, within four or five hours, it will have grown back. That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> now, from a modern chemistry point of view, is this all you can account for all this? Yeah, the tree. Or is there, are there mysteries there? There are still some mysteries there. there. There's some chemistry going on that's not entirely clear. That is fascinating. I would love to talk more about scholarship. A whole, a whole load of things around the scholarship, around chemistry, around the history of science, around alchemy and your work. But before we do that, I'm, I'm just aware that we haven't yet talked about the problem of esotericism in alchemy. And this is really, really important. So there's a, a number of things we might want to discuss under the rubric of esotericism. One is the pseudonymity of, of authorship. One is the use, the use that goes way back to, of deknamen. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And yes. more generally, the the constant uses of of impenetrable allegory and motifs of secrecy and don't let this knowledge out. And this is the secret knowledge of the, the ancient sages, the ancient sages, or the philosophic adepts, or the Brotherhood of Hermes, or whatever. Yeah. What do you have to say about this? Because because alchemy really is. You know, a lot of sciences have a, a reputation for being esoteric. Uh, astrology is a classic example. Sometimes it is esoteric. So, for example, the, the writings of Vettius Valens, a very important Roman-era astrologer, his book has what's called a secrecy codicil. It says, don't show this book to anyone. Keep it secret, right? But that's not true across the board. Ptolemy, the, the greatest authority of astronomy astrology of of you know the sort of hellenistic synthesis from the second century ce he's just he's just writing manuals you know he wrote a book called handy tables you know it's like handy it's for anyone who can do a bit basic maths you can figure out when the eclipse is going to be this sort of thing but in alchemy it seems like this esoteric vibe is really runs through the history of alchemy Right. Well, we have to be very careful what we mean by esotericism here. Now, if by esotericism we mean a kind of knowledge that is restricted to a small circle of the people who are either initiates or just simply in the know, then yes, alchemy does for most, not all, but for most of it his, its history, have that character. Um, I think esotericism in modern usage has a broader meaning than that, and it's more... Uh, complex to say what the relationship between esotericism in that broader meaning and alchemy actually is. But if we're talking just about restricted communication to a circle of initiates, that's that's much more easy to talk about. And alchemy gets that from actually a number of different sources. One of the sources is clearly its very roots in craft traditions, where one has to preserve a level of secrecy uh, to protect one's profitability, in a sense, or one's knowledge to keep it within the family, let's say. That's one example. Another source is there is a kind of initiatic style that occurs in quite a large number of alchemical texts. Part of this undoubtedly comes from a sort of borrowing from religious texts, esoteric religious texts. Some of it, certainly, we can we can place very clearly in the Islamic world in the writings of Shiite Ismaili sects who were being persecuted at a particular time and place under the Abbasid Caliphate, who keep their religious teaching secret, and the alchemical treatises, which come out under the name of Jabir, Jabir ibn Hayyan, which come out of that particular sect, share this initiatic style as well. And this is often imitated, in fact, even in Latin authors. Okay. But, but really, the, the, the other thing is that alchemy's dangerous. And so when alchemy really takes off in the Latin world, it's very clear early on. The earliest alchemical texts are remarkably straightforward. But as I, as I alluded to previously, the 14th century was not real good for the alchemists. In 1317, Pope John XXII issues a decretal against alchemy. The story is that there was a debate held between the pro-alchemy and the counter-alchemy parties. And apparently the pro-alchemy parties didn't do very well at this debate because uh, the decretal says that those who profess alchemy boast of that which they cannot perform. And... What's clear in this decretal is that the Pope is really worried about counterfeiting, that false gold and silver will be coined into coinage, and that will be bad for all kinds of reasons, of course. The result of this is not that people stop doing alchemy, but that alchemy suddenly becomes much more secretive. Right. And it's at that point that we see the really strong allegorical, secretive nature come into the Latin world, and also the very close linkage of alchemy to religion, that, all right, now you said that alchemy is a cheating kind of practice, what's the response? No, it's a holy art. It reveals the secrets of religion in a direct kind of way. Uh, so it's, it's a way of approaching the creator through the creation, and it's totally legit Christian science. That is the case, but also that even the 
the way that substances react in an allegorical way reveals such things as the virgin birth, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Right. So, yeah, very multi-layered. Very multi-layered. That's the key about alchemy. When I think of early modern alchemical emblem books, yeah, or late medieval or Renaissance, however you want to timeline it, is this a kind of... Is, does this descend from that kind of a melting pot of different uh, esoteric themes? In, in part, but I would be hesitant to give just a single uh, origin story for it. Yeah. On the one hand, yes, uh, alchemical emblem books, many of them, were intended to communicate particular alchemical procedures or processes. And they can actually be deciphered into workable laboratory processes. So there is that. There is also another strand of it where alchemy becomes a sort of intellectual game, where there are also texts that take sort of emblems and decnomen and allegories from a lot of different sources, compile them together into sort of learned play. Interesting. So at the same time, the emblem book, not just in alchemy, but the emblem book in general, uh, Alciati in the 16th century. This was something for scholars to do, to look at. There's also a sort of learned play in some alchemical publications as well. I I think we as moderns have a hard time understanding the way that alchemists spoke simply because we are used to communicating in so rigidly literal a way, a way that would have been in fact almost alien to pre-modern peoples who saw a connected world, a connected universe with human beings as part of the natural world, connected to God, connected to everything. Look, just, it's very simple, just look at the, the art of the medieval Renaissance, early modern period. It's full of allegory and references and somehow people at the time expected that and they knew how to read it Hmm. nowadays we need a professor of art history to explain it to us right but the original viewers did not Hmm. just a small point what are decnomen i wonder if you can explain this technical term it's very important all right decnomen is a german term that translates very uh simply as cover name in other words these would be used as a kind of coding mechanism so that an alchemist writing does not have to use the accepted and readily recognizable name of a chemical substance so mercury might be called the fugitive slave or the the silver water and these names become quite remarkable uh, eagle dragon a red king, white queen, green lion, and so forth. And of course, once you get these decnomen with all kinds of biological creatures or human characters, you can then create stories for them and create these extended conceits of, you know, the red king marries the white queen and is eaten by a green lion and so forth. And so you can make rip make weave them out into these very extended stories. And do you think that this happened both as a way of expressing esoterically laboratory procedures, but also as just flights of fancy by people who were never involved in laboratory stuff? It's possible that some of them are just flights of fancy, but many of them are, are very clearly trying to convey, well, I should say, and they clarify that, both conceal and reveal. I mean, if you really want to conceal, what do you do? You don't write anything. Right. Exactly. Yet alchemists are constantly writing. <laughs> so it's not just concealment, it's also revelation, but in a measured way. And here we get back to that question of how is it esoteric? Well, if you're in the know, if you're smart enough, you can figure out what it's about. But the thing I need to add very immediately to that is that alchemists, most of them, we know, were able to write in two different registers. That is, they could write this highly allegorical, analogical, hidden kind of language for public consumption, like in a book or a circulated manuscript. But when we get hold of their letters, which are private documents from one person to another, we see they talk as plainly as one would ever want. Interesting. So they're capable of doing both. But one is private, one is public. Right. Let's talk about scholarship for a minute, if we can. Um, 
you've already touched on the history a little bit in in Western Europe of the the sort of fortunes, the rising and falling fortunes of alchemy. At what point do people start studying alchemy from the perspective not of wanting to transmute metals, but wanting to understand how these people thought and what they were getting up to? Right. So what you're asking is essentially, when does the history of science actually get serious attention, say, from historians, from historians of science in particular? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the, the early attention that was paid to alchemy was not generally very positive. The first generations of historians of science, so late 19th, early 20th centuries, tended to use alchemy as a foil against which to set off modern science. One was irrational, one was rational. And that's part of the kind of positivism that that positivist philosophy that was very popular among that generation. That really persisted almost until the time that I started getting interested in alchemy in the late 70s and the early 80s. And there was, I actually fought a few battles with some of the old guard uh, that thought it was crazy to talk about alchemy as part of the history of science. Right. So really, even though there were always a few very clever, smart individuals in the 1930s and the 40s and the 50s, very, very few, uh, there were very, very few of them, and their work tended not to become part of the mainstream of the history of science. So alchemy really only started coming into its own, huh, the 1980s, I would say. Wow. So what we're, do what we're actually witnessing is sort of an alchemical renaissance, if you will, um, that's been going on for, what, about 50 years now. So Lynn Thorndike really was out there on his own, huh? Lynn Thorndike was an amazing character. I don't know how on earth he was able to read as many manuscripts and visit as many libraries as he actually did. Now, someone who knew him once told me that he considered World War II to be a terrible annoyance because it meant he couldn't get to the libraries he wanted to go to. <laughs> Is extraordinary. Now, it, it is true that Thorndike did often have a slightly dismissive attitude towards parts of the alchemical and astrological tradition. Nevertheless, one cannot criticize the vast amount of work that he actually did. And I still do, you know, go to the indices of his books to see, okay, what manuscripts did you see that I should go and see? And he was the only one doing it, seemingly. One of the very few. Amazing. The, there were but not many. Nowadays, we have seemingly a whole lot of interest in history of science. Uh, history of medicine is really big in yep. academe. Mm -hmm. History of astrology is even getting a look in a little bit here and there sure. in respectable academe as part mm -hmm. of the story of astronomy and also just on its own account as a historical curiosity. And alchemy has been seemingly put on the map, although we don't, we're never going to see maybe a department of alchemical history or anything like that but it within history of sciences it seems to be a have an accepted niche it does now um and when i got started i mean the two things that have happened over the course of my career that surprised me more than anything else is one that alchemy has actually become a hot topic in the history of science uh, because when i was uh, just getting started and people asked me what i did and i said alchemy it was one of those moments like at a cocktail party where the ice cubes stop clinking in the glasses and everybody sort of walks <laughs> to the far corners of the room to talk to someone less questionable. And the other thing is you mentioned my interest in redoing alchemical experiments. That got a lot of criticism when I was first doing it as well. And the replication of historical experiments has itself now become uh, a hot topic. It hasn't become mainstream yet, but there are actually other people doing it, which is I'm 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 flabbergasted. Now, what on what grounds were did you get flack for doing alchemical experiments or re recreating experiments? Well, interestingly, it came from two completely opposite ends of the historical spectrum. It came on the one hand from very conservative historians who thought that well, you're just a scientist playing with history. Oh, I this see. is what historians do. And it also came from the sort of most avant-garde historians, the people who thought that the sciences were actually the product of social manipulations. So the argument went that, well, 
if you're doing this now, the only thing you're going to see is what's already in your own mind from this, the present, not what someone in the 17th century would have seen. It's actually that your, your results will actually be different to that level. I didn't think much of either argument. The, the first one means that we're sort of stuck using all the tools and resources that we've had for the last hundred whatever years, and we can't branch out with new tools. The second one means that basically the entire project of history is thrown into nihilism because, oh, we can't think like the past, so we'll just give up. Right. I totally see where you're coming from on both points. And let's assume, just for argument's sake, that the, the properties of matter have remained the same throughout the historical <laughs> period, then yes. to argue that, you know, if you put this plus this in a glass jar and heat it to this temperature, it's good. you're going to come up with a different result from someone who did that in the 17th century is problematic, let's say. You, I think it is problematic. You're going, now, you may well interpret the results differently because you're a modern exactly. person, etc. But the same kind of basic thing is going to happen to the stuff in the test tube. Right, right, exactly. You know, what you have to do is realize that replication of experiments, reproduction of experiments, reworking, whatever you want to call it, the results of that have to be interpreted with the same kind of historical acumen that you would use to interpret a historical document. So it's not like suddenly the answers are revealed to us. Believe me, when you go into the lab, and anybody who's an experimental scientist knows this, most of what you do fails. And the same is true with reworking experiments that you know, 90% of what you try doesn't not work. And you just have to keep changing variables to try and figure out, well, to, to, to make your reworking more accurate. Mm. So just as a quick example, um, I discovered that a lot of things that really, if you just read protocols from the early modern texts and you translate them sort of naively into modern chemical language, they should never work. But remember that they didn't go to the chemical supply house and get 99.9% .9 pure materials. They were pulling them out of mines and getting them from shops and wherever from natural sources. And once you put impurities back into the mix, things change an awful lot. And so some things that don't work with chemically pure reagents, you get a little bit of impurity in there and they work completely differently. Often the way the uh, early alchemists said they would. Hmm. That's interesting. That's actually a claim that's brought up in Morning of the Magicians. Have you read Morning of the Magicians? Oh, a very, very long time ago. So this is a, a, a book that, you know, went a long way toward a lot of elements of the popularization of, of esotericism. And one of the things they claim is that the, the alchemists um, achieve their spectacular effects that we can't achieve anymore because they were not using chemically pure stuff, but they were using, you know, the certain type of glass and the certain type of ingredients, and it all had to be just right. And then you could perhaps even achieve transmutation. Is transmutation possible outside of a star or a nuclear reactor? Not as far as we know, <laughs> no. Okay, I just wanted to get that out of the way. How dangerous was alchemy and how dangerous is alchemy now? Well, uh, depends on what you mean by danger. Do you mean danger from... Um... I mean danger of death or madness or whatever through breathing horrible fumes, things uh... exploding... So in terms of toxicity, yeah, could be pretty dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Remember, they're working with all kinds of things like mercury and arsenic and antimony and the heavy metals. So it is definitely not good for your health. Uh, there's one of these uh, medieval author, medieval English authors who refers to you can always detect the uh, uh, alchemists because their skin is drawn and blue and they stink of sulfur. Uh, so you can tell them on the street with no problem. Uh, but we also have accounts of people being poisoned by accidentally poisoning themselves, blinding themselves with explosions. All these kinds of things could happen. So just like chemistry today. Right. So when you're in the lab working with these materials, now you, you have a training in, chem in chemistry, first of all. Is that right? Yes. My first PhD. Yeah. And then I might as well just get personal for a second and say, how, what got you into alchemy? How did you get interested in it? <laughs> Ah, well, again, like most historical things, it's a, it's a twofold story. Many years ago, many, many years ago, more years ago than I care to remember, 
Um, I think I was uh, a high school student um, looking through the library shelves in the public library of my town. And I was interested in chemistry from a very young age. But I discovered this time that they didn't have the book I wanted on making explosives. So I started looking at other things and found a book uh, on alchemy. And it had lots of these beautiful illustrations of alchemical uh, manuscript pages from it. And I looked at them and I was taking Latin at the time and so I could read them. And I thought to myself, I wonder what they were really doing. Now, a critic would say, well, you spent your entire life answering that one question. What's your next question? But uh, some questions do take a lifetime to answer. The second answer to the question ha happens that um, when I was an undergraduate, I was a major in chemistry, but I also did another degree at the same time, which was basically a history of science degree. Um, wasn't called that, but uh, it was uh, redoing experiments, translating some alchemical works, reading alchemical works. Uh, my institution, the University of Delaware, had a, has a tremendous collection of early chemical texts, and so I was able to use those. And the chemistry department was very willing at that time before our hyper-legalistic age of letting an undergraduate go into the laboratory and do alchemical experiments. So I, I went on to graduate school as an organic chemist. I got my, as I was writing my dissertation to get my PhD, midway through I realized that my idea of what a chemist in, well, that then it was 1988, what a chemist in 1988 did uh, was actually way out of date. I had sort of had the idea of going into a, becoming a professor of chemistry, going into the lab, doing experiments, having a few students to work with me. I was not prepared to be a lab manager writing grants for millions of dollars every year to keep a lab running and to subvent the university with overhead costs because I am not a good manager of, like that and I'm not a good grants hustler. So I consider myself a victim of big science. That's not what got me out of chemistry full time. Um, and so I started, after I finished that PhD, I started a second PhD in the history of science. Got it. So let's get back to the lab for, if you have a few more minutes. I'd love to talk about your work. Um, I assume that when you go into the lab with uh, dangerous stuff, you use all the usual modern safety precautions and I do breathers if necessary and stuff like that. Do you ever find a an experiment that you want to do from an old manuscript that requires you to be very creative in your safety precautions? Yes, absolutely. Um, but you know, there is always some way of doing it. Uh, you just have to be aware of what modern safety protocols are, what the legal aspects are, and with a little bit of foresight, maybe some help from safety people, you can do it. Um, particularly, I mean, if, if, if you've been trained as a chemist, you should be pretty aware of what the safety issues are. Yeah. Um, and of course, there is one thing that the alchemist did that I do not do and I do not intend to do, which was routinely taste the substances that they make. I do draw the line there. Presumably because they, they had a, a much more limited palette of testing procedures, right? Right. And, you know, chemists continued to taste things into the, well into the 20th century. It was one of the analytical methods. Um, chemists have to use their senses all the time. Smell as well. Like I, I still, as a chemist, I find smell to be really useful with uh, some substances. Yeah, but some substances will kill you if you smell them. That's right. You need to know which ones you can sniff and which ones you can't. <laughs> Lawrence Principe, thank you so much for speaking with us. I wonder, before I let you go... Is there any um, alchemical laboratory anecdote uh, from your experience that stands out as a, a real classic that you could oh. tell us about? Wow. I think I told the one I told you. About <laughs> the tree is pretty good. That's probably it. That's, that's the one that I would think about the most. Um, I've had a lot of surprising results happen, but none was quite as ground-shaking as that to me. So quite so shocking. And... Do you think there is any scope for the study of alchemy in a lab-based study of alchemy to actually produce new results in chemistry? To broaden yes, our... actually, I do, and I'm I'm not talking about some some over subverting the foundations of modern chemistry. Nothing like that. But 
we make a mistake of thinking that the that the development of the sciences is a constantly additive process that each generation has more information than the generation before that's not actually true because as we move through time, we're constantly dropping things. In other words, we're sort of carrying so much we can't keep carrying it all, and stuff falls out of our arms and is forgotten. So there's a lot of chemical knowledge that was known very well in the 19th century that now if you told a modern chemist, well, so-and-so, they would not believe you. Hmm. But it was something that every chemist of the 19th century knew. And things like metallurgy, where in the early 20th century when metals making the right metal alloy was extremely important technologically. People knew how to do it. And there's a lot of that material also that's lost. So every generation sort of goes to follow something new and none of us has infinite time. So inevitably there are always some pieces of information that are lost. Um, in, in my case, one of my early experiments in reproducing alchemical results was to study something called the glass of antimony. And this was a very, very common substance. In fact, this book I was getting it out of by uh, a supposed Benedictine monk going under the name of Basil Valentine, which he wasn't, um, uh, said, well, you know, I have sort of apologized for starting with this, but I'm just starting from the beginning. Every beginner knows how to make this substance. I spent months trying to get it to work. And what I discovered was that the glass of antimony, if you go to a modern chemical source and you look up glass of antimony, what they're describing is a completely different substance than what was known in the early modern period. So one is the modern one, one known modern in modern times is deep red colored and the old one is yellow or golden colored. And the golden one had completely dropped out of the chemical literature by the early 19th century. Wow. So there's a lot of stuff in there that um, because it does not speak to our present concerns, our present needs, our present theories is no longer preserved within sort of the, the, uh, the living memory of, of the chemist or of the scientist. Right. Well, keep on digging. <laughs> I will. Lots of interesting stuff has come out and I'm sure more interesting stuff is going to come out in the future. Lawrence Principe, thank you again so much for this delightful and super educational talk on alchemy. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. Stay esoteric. <laughs> I shall. <laughs>